of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode 12, January 2019, Strine, Australian English, that is. A conversation with Linda Nichols-Gidley. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast, a service of Paul Meyer Dialect Services at paulmeyer.com, where you'll find all my books, e-books and services for spoken word training and coaching. I was absolutely delighted this past month when Julia Whelan, my guest in March 2018 on podcast number two, and whom I had coached for her audiobook reading of her own debut novel, My Oxford Year, told me she was the recipient of the Society of Voice Arts Award for Best Voiceover Performance by an author. Congratulations, Julia, and good luck with the film of the book. Linda Nichols-Gidley is a voice, accents and dialect coach based in Sydney, Australia. Her work ranges across large national and international touring productions, including DreamWorks, How to Train Your Dragon, and Opera Australia's The Merry Widow, two smaller independent theatre productions throughout Sydney. She also coaches for film and television. Linda was Associate Lecturer in Voice at the National Institute of Dramatic Arts, NIDA, in Sydney from 2011 to 2017. She coaches actors all over the world via Skype and at her private studio. I'm proud to say she is an Associate Editor of the International Dialects of English Archive, IDEA, contributing wonderful recordings of Australians and some from Papua New Guinea, Australia's close neighbour to the north across the Torres Strait. Read more about her on her website, Vocovox. Summon your voice at vocovox.com.au. So, Linda, thanks so much for accommodating the 17-hour difference in time zones here this morning. (laughs) You're welcome. And uh, I've really been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Yes, me too. So, Strine. <laughs> yes. Is that how you guys refer to your own dialect, Strine? Uh, look, I think a lot of people do. We get versions of that which go anywhere between Strine to Strayan. And, uh, you know, maybe every now and then you might get an Aussie coming in there as well. But, yes, we do quite often talk about it like that. Or we call it the Bogan accent the is bi- what I hear a lot. The Bogan, Bogan accent. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I do hope we can get into some typically Australian lexical items of some vocabulary. There's some wonderful ones like a servo for a service station, right? Absolutely. We like to put an O on the end of everything. So servo, bottle O, um, you know, we, we can put an E on the ends of things as well. And, so, And here in the United States, it's late in the Arvo. Right. It's Arvo. It's Arvo we love. <laughs> uh, those things seem to be disappearing a little bit now, though, I think. Certainly in, in the circles that I'm in, I don't hear them quite as much as I used to, and they're not as much a part of the Australian television vernacular as perhaps they used to be either. So perhaps you can tell us some up-to-date vernacular. Oh, I think we borrow a lot from America, to be honest. You know, we we do a lot of lol and a lot of, um, you know, we have things called tracky dacks. I don't know if you've heard of those. They sound like shoes. 
they're not shoes. They are, in fact, what you might call track pants. Oh, tracky dacks. Yeah. Oh, because I, I knew that dacks were uh, Australian trousers, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, tracky dacks. Oh, we wear those a, a quite a lot. A tracksuit <laughs> track trousers. Tracksuit trousers, yes. <laughs> Perhaps we should call them that. Yeah, and what else do we have? Uh, look, we have, we have a whole bunches of things but we will shorten lots of people's names with an o in fact we call it shortening in fact i think it's probably lengthening so steve might become steve-o so Uh, i'm I'm, I'm paulo am i you you might be paulo but you're probably paulie paulie which feels a bit new york to me paulie yeah paulie yeah paulie come over here paulie come over here yeah yeah yeah, so in that kind of thing, we lengthen to shorten. So here, my students have had occasion to call me Lindo. Lindo. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a playful. Um, Aussies play with language, don't they? Yeah, we do. Well, I think it's Americans don't be- aren't quite so ludic, uh, not so playful. I think. Yeah, I, I think that language for Australians or the use of language is a bit irreverent. I don't know that we we know that there is a certain maybe, you know, to, to be devil's advocate, correct way of speaking. We, you know, we have that understanding that somewhere around the world there is this idea of being good at speaking. Yes. But I think part of our culture is that we reject that a little <laughs> and prefer to, yeah, be irreverent with it. I like it. I like it very much. Mm. And um, we might discover in the course of our conversation of the history of Australian English, you know, where that irreverence, where that sense of humour comes from. So why don't we go right back to the beginning, 1788, the uh, establishment of the penal colony mm-hmm. in New South Wales. Uh, well, the wonderful thing, isn't it, is that Australia is such a young country, we can, and we know who the people were to an astonishing degree of accuracy, who were the convicts. Right. Uh, and the officers who accompanied them in 1788. So we can almost trace the provenance of the development of the Australian English accent. Would you, would you, would that make sense to you? Absolutely. And I think it's really clear, uh, where, it, where that melting pot has come from and and you can hear the a lot of the influences in the current Australian accent you know that people came from predominantly the south of England both southeast and southwest so when you look back at perhaps the East Anglian accent from England you can hear a lot of what are essentially Australian sounds in that particular accent Exactly. Though it seems to me that the West Country, the, 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 I grew up in the West Country till I went to London and, you know, I began talking with a rhotic accent, burn, barn and born. But clearly mm-hmm. those West Country folks who were part of that first fleet, their accent lost out to the predominantly southeastern England. Would you, would you agree? Because Australian doesn't say yeah. burn, barn, born, but burn, barn, born, right? Burn Barn Born. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's quite interesting for me that 
that particular southwestern English accent really lost out in a lot of ways because there was a, a large element of the Irish population that came over as well. And so you would have expected perhaps for there to be slightly more roticity yes. in the Australian accent, and yet it's really not evident at all. I don't hear any lingering of Hampshire and Dorset and Cornwall and Somerset, the West Country, or any of the the rhotic sounds of of Ireland, which and it, we know it was rhotic at the time, are coloured. So yes. somehow the the children of that diverse group of what was it, fourteen or fifteen hundred people in that first fleet, mm-hmm. the children of those men and women who were banished to the ends of the earth. They did some leveling, right? Yes, they absolutely did. Isn't and that a fascinating process? So talk to me about how you th- think that kind of leveling played out among the kids of the original convicts. I feel that children are a bit like bowerbirds and they take the things that feel most interesting to them as their learning language. You know, and they are, as you know, when when we learn to speak, we have this positive reinforcement of particular sounds. And as a part of that positive reinforcement, I think there was already the beginnings of that southeastern accent in England was becoming the flavour of the country and it was becoming the more prestige accent. So I remember reading something very early on in the history of the Australian English. There was a letter sent home from the colonies that said something like the children of the first fleeters had the most perfect, correct English accent or something around that. So even at that point, I think the element of RP or that prestige accent that perhaps the the officers brought with them was starting to be given to the children and they were picking those things up. Interesting. I had read some of those same letters mm. uh, admiring of the way the leveled accent uh, was clear and understandable, and so the early ac- the the early attitudes towards the proto Australian accent that came about in what eighteen ten eighteen twenty eighteen thirty was very admirable. It was admired by travellers from England and and America as as a really pleasant and intelligible and clear way of using the language. But, yes, but, very positive. But then, but then, Australian has also undergone a reversal of that admiration, hasn't it? You know, it's become kind of um, not so admired. You know, you know, a little bit mangled, and people like to make fun of it and 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 dismiss it as a as a not so pleasant accent. So, a change in in the way that the world viewed the Australian English yeah. as it evolved. And I I don't know when that attitude really cemented itself and I wonder if perhaps that was a reaction to being so far away from the motherland that we felt we weren't you know achieving the beauty and clarity of that prestige accent as it gained 
more prestige mm -hmm. because I think those attitudes actually began in Australia as opposed to outside of Australia. Do you yeah, know? Yes. I mean, I think it's a truism, isn't it, that, that far-flung colonies of whatever nation we're talking about are always more conservative than the people back in the homeland, and they hang on. Mm -hmm. I remember being in Victoria, British Columbia, and in the architecture and, and in the speech, it, it reminded me of uh, my boyhood home in England of 50 and 60 years earlier. It was as if mm -hmm. time had stopped, and it was like tr time traveling back to my boyhood. <laughs> Things had moved on in London, but, but in Victoria, British Columbia, uh, there was still uh, a, a more old-fashioned, still more yeah. archaic view of what the British culture was. Right, and you see that in a lot of migrant communities where, you know, the, the language holds on to those traditional sounds that they have migrated with. And I think the same is true of Australia that we have held on to those sounds that were current and probably popular and full of prestige at that moment in time. Who was it who said that um, Australian English is a fossil remnant of Dickensian London speech? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Did you ever direct or coach Our Country's Good? I'm sure you must have. I was in Our Country's Good. Tell in everyone, my second year. <laughs> tell, everybody, tell everybody about that wonderful play. Well, it's, it's set during that time, 1788, 1789, at the beginning of the colonies here in Australia. And it's actually about the first production of a play in which they do the recruiting officer here in Sydney. So I played Mary, who is from Devon. So that was my first introduction to the Hampshire dialect. I'm not sure how well I did it compared to yours, Paul, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was yeah, in I second year. <laughs> so, and of course, Mary Brenham, right? Is that the character? Right. Mary yeah. Brenham was is is the lead character, the the love interest, as I recall. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and and was a real, of course, historical character, right? Yeah, and I believe most of those characters were real people. I just read that it uh, premiered on the 200th anniversary of the colony's establishment in 19, 1988, 200 years later. Yes, in London. Yes, Is, at, that's at, right. At, at the yes. Royal Court, I think. At, at the, the Royal, Royal Court. Court. I'm sure yeah. it must have been commissioned um, as the 200th anniversary celebration of, of the establishment of Australia as a British colony. I was just going to say, if you look at that play and you look at the characters that are in it, there are people from almost everywhere in the United Kingdom. There are people from the southwest, the southeast. There are Scottish characters. Uh, I think we probably even had an Irish character or two in some of those smaller satellite mm -hmm. characters. You know, so... It's interesting to hear all of those sounds. And, of course, there's also an Indigenous character. Yes. So mm. we have the Indigenous character and there's one, there's a black, what's his name, black something from Madagascar? Black. Uh, yes. Um, I've forgotten his I name. Cannot, yes, I can't recall it off the top of my head either. So, so Timberlake Wurtenbaker, the, the playwright, I guess went to pains to represent the tremendous diversity in that convict population 
Though if you look at the um, ship's manifests mm-hmm. that lists as well as we can, yes, I have here a uh, a document, a, a list of the convicts on the First Fleet. Mm-hmm. It's, it gives the name, the date of birth, the place of conviction, date of conviction, other information. And if I scroll down, uh, the predominant place name in that long list is London, despite the diversity that we experienced in our country's good. So do you think that explains sufficiently why it is that it seems that Southeast British English pronunciation won out over Irish and of of the West Country and of of the Fens and Essex? Yeah, I think... You know, I talk quite often to my students about the idea that our greatest human condition is to want to belong. And I think one of the ways we truly show that we belong is in terms of our linguistic community. So, you know, if the vast majority of people had this accent, I think it's very likely that everybody else moved slowly towards that. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, there's no doubt about it. That accent is strong. Uh, it is, and when I say strong, I mean it is bold and it has a lot of energy behind it. And, you know, it, it has a sense of moving forward into space. And I think there's something very attractive about that in terms of what you're doing with speech. Let's try to trace the similarities between broad Aussie and and Cockney. I was struck by the number of signature sounds that the mm-hmm. two accents share. So I'll do I'll do Eliza Doolittle. Okay. And in Cockney and then you you treat us to a broad Aussie version of that. How would that be? Great. Okay, so um if I can get the Aussie out of my head now. You, know, <laughs> you, you don't you don't call a like them my friends now I should hope. They've took it out of me often enough with their ridicule when they had the chance. And now I mean to get a bit of me own back. But if I'm to have fashionable clothes, I'll wait. I should like to have some. Mrs. Pierce says you're going to give me some to wear in bed at night, different to what I wear in the daytime. But it do seem a waste of money when you could get something to show. Besides, I never could fancy changing into cold things on a winter night. So straight out of my textbook, which... You used at NIDA and other places you've taught, right? Yes. That's, my, mm-hmm. that's one of the two Cockney monologues we use in the book. So give us that in broad Aussie, and let's see if we can trace the similarities. You don't call the like of them my friends now, I should hope. They've took it out of me often enough with their ridicule when they had the chance, and now I'm in to get me a bit of my own back. But if I'm to have fashionable clothes, I'll wait. I should like to have some. Mrs. Pierce says you're going to give me some to wear in bed at night, different to what I wear in the daytime. But it do seem a waste of money when you could get something to show. Besides, I never could fancy changing into cold things on a winter night. There's a similar tonality, isn't there? Yeah. There's a, yeah, there it, really is. It, it, it's bold. It's bold. It's bold. Mm-hmm. It's bold. In, you know, and, and both are susceptible to a slight, a slight twanginess, perhaps. Yes, I think they both have a, a really 
similar muscular action too. You know, a lot of the, a lot of people talk about the Australian accent and maybe we'll get to this a bit later, but they talk about it as being lazy. It's something that I work with my students trying to get them out of that headspace. But in fact, broad Australian and Cockney, both of which I think have often been called lazy, have such extraordinary muscularity to get those sounds out. They do. Yeah. I, I think it perhaps it's the the legato quality of it. It flows. Mm. You don't call a lot of them my friends now, I should hope. You don't call a lot of them my friends now, I should hope. It's, I mean, it is muscular and the consonants are quite muscular. But it's, I not, think there's it's, a, it's not unclear. No, not at all. And I think um, I probably didn't do a lot of it then, but the glottal quality in Cockney does transfer into Australian too. So you do hear, particularly before a vowel, but you can get in the middle of a word, you know, that glottal quality as well. I was pinpointing that as one of the points of dissimilarity, but I'm, I would yeah, love, right. love to be stood corrected. So they've took it out of me. You hear the glottal stops there. They, they've took it out of me. And the Aussie... We would get, you took it out of me. So, yes. Or out of me, out of me. Okay. So So you'd get that. Two different versions. Okay. So the American influence, out of me, out of me, or the the similarity with American English, out of me, out of me, or out of me. What are some of the signature sounds you find they share? Uh, I'm always really struck with the sharing of the mouth set so in broad australian you can still get mouth mouth which you get down south yeah down south yeah so you get that same quality i'm going around the town is very similar to cockney i'm going around the tan yes really similar in fact it feels so similar in my mouth i couldn't tell if i was doing them differently and face i think is fairly similar yeah, face, uh, face. R- r- it's- so Ryan in Spain stays mainly in the plane. I'm thinking Cockney. Do it in Australian. The rain in Spain stays mainly on the plane. Really similar beginning and really end. Similar. Yeah. Now the yeah. L is different. There's that velar L, that L, swallowing the tongue kind of L. Look at Linda. Yeah, look at Linda. Look at lucky Linda, right? Absolutely. So we make those dark L's everywhere. But a point of similarity with those L's would be actually that vowel-like quality at the ends of words that you get in Cockney. So like school right. and bell yeah. and ball. Yeah. So those are pretty similar, that final L. The final L is similar, yes. Mm. How about age dropping? Australian doesn't do any age dropping. I have a lot of actors who want to drop H's. And, you know, he put his hat on his head instead of they put his hat on his head. Yeah, but you might actually, in that, the his, the H there will be dropped, but none of the others. Right. Only that. And also for her. Yes. Yeah, I think that's common throughout English, speaking with the, Mm. the little H words, him, his, her. Yeah. We can drop the H's when they're in unstressed positions, but substantial words like... I went to the hotel. I went to the hotel. I went. I went to the hotel. Right. Hotel. Yeah. yeah. We don't get that kind of age dropping in Australia. 
My favourite American uh, Australian vowel is is O, as in <laughs> goat. Am I doing it right? Yes. Yes, it comes right up into that um, centralised close vowel, goat, goat. It can even get... Don't go home, don't go home alone. Yeah, don't go home alone. Alone. (laughs) It can even go, and I use this a lot because I love it, I say to my students, goose, the plural of goose and the word goose can be the same. Oh, geese, so geese. in broad Australian, you can get geese or geese. Right. So you don't know if it's single or plural. Look at the geese. Look at the geese. Pretty close in very broad Australian. I know you divide the, the range of Australian accents into what? Cultivated, general, broad. What's the fourth one? The ethnic? We have uh, an accent which is currently being called multi-ethnic Australian. Multi-ethnic, yeah. Yeah. And then then Uh, indigenous, right, the fifth one? And then the indigenous accents. Though, you know, I have a little bit of a – I have a bit of an issue with it just being called indigenous because, as you know, there are 300 languages, at least indigenous languages in Australia, and they are quite different, the accents. In fact, if you go particularly from West Coast to East Coast, they're quite different and North to South. So examples of cultivated Australian would be um, people like Kate Blanchett and a very similar way to the way I'm speaking now, I think, we would consider to be cultivated Australian. And Australians would refer to that as a cultivated style of speech? Oh, they would. They would probably call it posh, if I'm honest. (laughs) Uh, We still have those sort of ideas. I think the real cultivated Australian accent, what I would consider to be cultivated Australian, is almost gone completely. You know, that was sort of very big in the 60s and 70s into probably the early to mid-80s, but now those accents seem to be disappearing and we're moving closer to the general Australian accent, which is probably a little bit more like what I'm doing now, a bit flatter uh, and in terms of what my mouth is doing, a bit flatter, has a little bit more nasality and the vowels are more fronted in the mouth when you go into general Australian. And then, of course, you know, we've got the broad Australian accent, which we've got, you know, Steve Irwin and uh, Crocodile Dundee and that kind of thing, which tends to have a lot of tongue retraction going on with it and uh, a lot more nasality. So the soft palate's dropped quite a bit. And then if we go into multi-ethnic Australian, we get something that sounds a little bit like this and it has a lot of uh, fronted consonants and a little bit of the tongue coming forward so that we get slight whistles on the S's and the SH sounds. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's not a stereotype really at all, but it's a very prevalent. That multi-ethnic Australian is quite prevalent in the western suburbs and, and what of are the, Sydney. What are the formative uh, influences? Is it... Is it uh, Asian migration or immigration or what? what is that? 
In fact, it's Greek, Macedonian, Italian, Lebanese. There is now uh, some influences from the Asian migration as well. And I think actually what's developing is another accent again. But we'll have to look to the future to see how that pans out, I think. Are the influences on what you've just described similar to what's happening in England with multicultural London English? Yeah, I think so. I think initially we were looking at one particular migrant group developing an accent and then people joining into that. And now I think that's broadening. And so there are so many other uh, migrant populations in Australia now that they are all starting to feed into that. So it is shifting around quite a bit. When was the white-only immigration policy finally dropped? I would have to look online to find the exact date, but I think it was, I feel like we still had the white Australia policy in the late 70s, early 80s. I know that during that time, Italian and Greek migrants, Macedonian migrants were called coloured aliens. But I do think it was quite late. I've just it looked, feels very recent. I have just Googled it and found it, it was 73. 73. The legal end of the white Australia policy is usually placed in the year 1973, when the Whitlam Labour government implemented a series of amendments preventing the enforcement of racial aspects of the immigration mm. law. Yeah, that still feels very close for me which is strange because I was born in 1973. So <laughs> it shouldn't feel that close, but it does feel quite prevalent. I, I remember hearing about it on the news. So it must have still, even though it was, there were changes to the law, it, it must have been still in some heated discussion. Obviously. Mm. But, but now it's, uh, Australia prides itself on tremendous diversity, does it not? Well, we call ourselves a multicultural community. Things are, are changing on the political landscape everywhere. And, you know, we're, we're in a place where perhaps that's not the case as much anymore. Um, I think we would like to think of ourselves as multicultural. But it sounds as if you think that um, it's still restrictive or hasn't, it's not as diverse as it might be. Um, look, I think the population is very diverse. I think it's just a, it's just a, a tricky conversation about pol politics as opposed to to accent, mm. if that makes sense. I just think it's it is a very tricky conversation. You know, we're having very very tricky political conversations about um, refugees and mm. the way Australia is treating refugees, and I, you know, that's a not a pleasant part of Australia, I think, at the moment, which is sad on a lot of levels. And, of course, the uh, tremendous guilt over the treatment of the indigenous population, right? Right, yeah, and and where where that's going and, and still, you know, and that trying to to make amends for that, which really can't ever achieved and is never yeah it's just a very it's a very sad part of Australia's history I think 
and currently the the political leanings of our government. I understand. Mm. Let's get on to something more pleasant. Okay. Okay. You sent me a clip of Beryl Mills, mm-hmm. the first Miss Australia, and she made this yes. recording in 1926. And it's fascinating to me to hear the Australian accent of what, almost 100 years ago. I'm going to play a little bit of that and then get you to tell me what you hear and what you think okay. about that style. My first view of America and the splendid welcome tendered to we antipodeans, as they love to call us, showed me the thoroughness with which they conduct everything they have undertaken to do. There are no half measures with them, and they show this in their business. So what comes to mind when you hear that? What goes through your mind when you hear Beryl Mills from 1926? Uh, Well, I I think the first thing that pops into my head is just how much of the idea of a, a British sound is there, particularly in the, the rhythms of the speech and and the consonants and even in a lot of ways the resonance and how the sound is sitting for her. So my first, as soon as I listen to those old reels, anything that I listen to that is sort of quite old, I think, gosh, we did have a real nod to RP. And then you sent me uh, this clip from 1961, this conversation mm-hmm. on the American... Australian the- Broadcasting Company. Australian Australian Broadcasting Company. And these th- three ladies are discussing, discussing whether it's a waste of time for married women to be educated. An amazing clip, not just for the accent, but of course for the topic. ...of time for married women. So of course I've got two married women to talk about it, and they're both uh, educated, uh, reasonably I suppose, Tony. Tony Thompson and Jean Ingston. Now tell me, first of all, your qualifications, Tony, what have you got by way of education? Uh, I have a trained kindergarten certificate. And Jean, what about you? I'm a pharmaceutical chemist. Well, that's a fair average sort of an education. Tony, why don't you think that that education's a good thing for married women? Well, I think too much higher education makes them very unhappy and very frustrated. Oh, why unhappy? Well, there they are at home, cooking meals, running a house. Oh, but still you get a certain amount of satisfaction out of that? Oh, yes. But uh, uh, you can't get out and about too much. Oh, yes, you can. You can organise yourself so that you can do your housework first and still go out and still be home in time for the children when they come home. And and again, the, in, initially, the first response is, gosh, how much of that British accent is there? But you're starting to hear, I think, in this clip, just a little bit more than we do in the 1926, some of those vowel sounds that we were just doing before which, in the which, which ones Australian. Are coming in? Which ones are coming in, to, do you hear? I think the diphthongs that we were talking about, that mouth sound um, and the face sound particularly coming through but again we still have that that sort of sensibility of of the rhythm of it being a little bit different uh, than perhaps it is nowadays where it is a bit more fluid and languid there was still a sense of there being a little bit more clipped with those vowel sounds 
there is more nasality in this clip than there was in the previous one. And then let's listen, let's go back to a speech recorded 1935, Sir Joe Cook's sixth Prime Minister of Australia. Mm -hmm. A speech he recorded late in his life, after he was out of office, but in 1935. Mm -hmm. I don't remember when he was in office, uh, perhaps in the around the turn of the century. Yes, I think so. First thing I did was to uh, cut down the telephone rates and to popularize them, put them on a popular footing so that people were glad to uh, purchase them and use them. At that time, there were only two or three thousand altogether in use. I cut the rate down from a, a flat rate of twelve pounds per annum to a flat rate of five pounds per annum. That is inclusive of everything. So what do you think of Joe Cook's accent? Son of a son of a miner. Yes, so just having a quick listen to that again, you can really hear the RP all the way through it. And in fact probably doesn't sound Australian at all, I think I would say. No one running for office today would stand a chance at the polls with an accent like that. Am I right? Oh, gosh, no. No, we. I don't think anybody would uh, trust somebody in Australia. <laughs> that, do you know what I mean? That, you know, Absolutely. where are you really from? Who are you? And why are you running for government here? <gasps> so, no, I don't, I don't think we would elect somebody like that. You know, the big shift, and perhaps I should have sent you this clip too, but the big shift was when Bob Hawke uh, came into office in the early 1980s, and he'd been a trade union leader, but also a Rhodes Scholar, so a very smart man, but he spoke like the people, and the Australian public loved him for that. Well, I just found this little clip from Bob Hawke paying tribute to the great life of Gough Whitlam. Well, let me say, first of all, that this is not a time for sadness. Gough was ready to go, and his family was ready for him to go. Rather, it's a remembrance of a great life. Uh, in my judgment, no star has shone brighter in the Australian political firmament over the years than the star of Gough Whitlam. Did he get coached downward, as it were? for his public life, as many American politicians do. They want to sound less patrician and, and more of the people and get coached in a downward direction instead of an upward direction, which used to be the case. I think it's a great question. I don't know the answer to it, but I feel like maybe not coached, but he understood that code switching would be very helpful. I think he probably had a voice for his private life and a voice for his public life, and he pushed that element of the larrikin Australian in his public life and mm. to great effect. You know, he was well-loved as a prime minister. Linda, when I've done those masterclasses for you at the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney, NIDA, I was almost struck by the amazing talent of those young Australian stars of tomorrow. 
Of course, your brilliant coaching and teaching is a, a huge factor, but why is it that Australian actors are so darn good at British and American accents? Well, I, my feeling is that we are exposed to so many influences in television and film, um, not only our, our Australian shows, but we have so much American content on our television, so much British content on our television that we are surrounded by it all the time. And so we play in those accents as children. We never learn that the sounds are, are wrong or, or not used. So I think we start playing with them very early on. And so when we start to have to do them for work, the, it, the transition becomes much easier. Who are some of the uh, the great Australian actors whom you would cite as particular exemplars of that Australian skill with American and British accents? Uh, from popular culture now, my favourite Australian actress doing an American accent is Yvonne Strahovski from A Handmaid's Tale. And I watched two seasons of that show, you know, listening with great detail, and could not fault her performance at all. I think she's quite phenomenal. Uh, Hugh Jackman, I think, does a, a really fantastic job of his American accents. Of course, there's Nicole Kidman, who's been or had been living in the States for a very long time. I think she's based in Sydney again now. Tony Collette. Uh, and her work in the United States of Tara was just absolutely fantastic, shifting between all of those dialects all of the time. She jumps from character to character and accent to accent. I've got a clip here. All of this stops right now, right now. No more selfishness, no more hijacking, no more excuses, and no more passing the buck. <laughs> no, shut up. From now on, my life will be organized. My life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness. These things will bend to my will. I will be in control. Me, Tara. End of story. That is faultless. Mm. No more passing the buck. Right. And she... She has a split personality disorder in the show, and so she plays several different characters, and all of them have slightly different accents. It's quite worth watching just for that. Are they all American accents? Yes. There's a lovely, uh, as I recall, a lovely southern accent that she does in there as well. I've loved Tony Collette ever since I saw Muriel's Wedding. Ah, that is a fantastic film. Have you seen that we have made it into a musical? No. It is glorious. They did it this year and they, they're bringing it back next year for a return season. It was a new Australian work, new music with the ABBA music uh -huh. as well. It's quite fantastic. Oh, wonderful. She did a Christian Bale number in Muriel's Wedding by putting on a good number of pounds for the role. Yeah, so it, it is a, a great film for Australian vernacular, and it's also a great film just in terms of the story. And then I saw her in Sixth Sense, Philadelphia, yes. I think. Wonderful mm -hmm. work. 
Yes, really detailed. And I think that's the other thing about Australian actors is that they understand that to work in America, in a lot of ways, we have to be better at the accent than people who grew up there. And what that means for me as a coach is that I try to tell people my job is not to teach them an American accent. My job is to get them under the radar so that people don't know that they're Australian when they walk into a room. Quite a challenge. Well, this has been marvellous, Linda. Thank you so very much for bringing your wonderful perspective to all of this. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Take care. Thank you. And thanks to you for joining Linda and me. And if you are moved to try your hand, or should I say your mouth, at Strine, the Australian dialect, take a look at my dialect instruction manual from paulmai.com or your favourite online bookstore. Join me next time when my guest will be my longtime colleague, David Allen Stern, one of America's best-known dialect coaches, founder of Dialect Accent Specialists, and Professor Emeritus of the University of Connecticut. His published dialect and accent manuals have been an industry staple since 1979, 20 years before I started publishing my own materials. David's client list includes Gina Davis, Olympia Dukakis, Julie Harris, Jennifer Jason Lee, Shelley Long, Liam Neeson, Lynn Redgrave, and a host of others. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking...